Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, or Jay Mace, as some of you may know me as. And we get the inside scoop inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. And with me right now, I have a legend in the world of film, TV, radio. If you're a radio geek like myself, you know this man all too well. From his days at WRKO in Boston, 93KHJ, LA, Federated, American Top 40, Hollywood Squares, Mental Radio, need I say more, the man himself. Yes, that's right, people. I'm hanging with the shadow today. Mr. Shadow Stevens, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Can you hear the cheering in my head? 10,000 people are standing going, ole, ole. And one yeah. guy is going, you suck. And I'm, of course, listening to him. It's like, he's the one who knows. He knows the secret. <laughs> he knows the fraud. <laughs> he knows that it's all fake. <laughs> yes, sir. Where's Where's the can sound effects cart when you need it? <sighs> Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. We need a huge, a huge cheer from somewhere. And I'm sure I must have one here. Um, that's appropriate to what I'm hearing in my head right now. I think it's very close. Yep, bear with me. Bear with me. There's huge thunder. There's huge thunder. Huge. Oh, here we go. There we go. Please. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you all. Please stop. I'll get a big head. Please. That's enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes sir that, that, God, i'm embarrassed i'm in front I'm in front of Jarrell. jesus that is what we are looking for i appreciate you wholeheartedly taking time out of your day to come on to my podcast and to celebrate you and your work well i appreciate being here it's good to meet you yes sir so let's go ahead and get it started what led you to go into radio and what were some of the programs that you listened to that said man i want to know what it is that they do inside of that little instrument called a radio. Well, you know, it, when I was real little, I thought there, I couldn't figure out how, you know, those voices could come out of, out of that box. And it was very mysterious to me. It was like magic. And they took me down to see a radio station when I was very, very little. And, and they said, well, that's where it comes from. And I go, how can that be? It was, it was such a mystery. And then I got to be uh, nine years old and I started recording little stories on my dad's tape recorder. And um, shortly thereafter, I was given what's called a wireless transmitter that you had to solder together and and follow all these rules to put little tube things. And I was good at following directions. So I put it together. Then I went down to the television store and I talked to the repairman. I said, how do I soup this up? And he goes, oh, you do this and this. Okay, I'll do all that. And put up a big antenna. So I put up a 100-foot antenna. Now, at 10 years old, I crawl to the the top of my third-story house. Up the roof is like this. Crawling along the edge with a wire between my teeth and a hammer and a loop. Hammering the loop into the side of the house so that I could attach the wire with its little um, condenser or whatever that was called, uh, insulator, so I could run it to a, a, a tree in the backyard. This allowed me to broadcast a mile in every direction. This was magic. And so it was a downhill roll ever, th- ever since. I uh, was discovered as um, 
by the local radio, one of the local radio stations, and they put me on the air as the world's youngest disc jockey. And I did that for quite a long time on Saturday mornings. I played rock and roll on Saturday morning. Now, how long Exciting. was that shift? Was that like an hour where they let you play rock or two hours? Yeah, it was only, I think it was an hour. Yeah, I think 11 until 12 on Saturday morning. And I would talk about what's going on in the school. And I'm sure I was terrible, but it was magic to me. And I have my picture. I still have the picture from the newspaper, World's Youngest Disc Jockey. Hey, man, I'm sure, I'm sure that got you a lot of pull in school. Hey, I, I'm on the radio. Yeah, well, you know, I was just always doing something because I had, you know, I think a short attention span. So I was also doing art. And as a, uh, when I was in high school, I <clears throat> painted monster sweatshirts in a mall with an airbrush. And uh, this was enough to make me enough money to, uh, to buy my own car. And, and, uh, and, and I would, uh, and, the, and even the car looked like something I drew. It had big wheels in the back, big 15 inch wheels in the back and 12 inch wheels on the front. And it had the chrome engine with uh, all the stuff coming out of the front and a big gear shift up high. So when I drove it, it was like, you know, I'm bad. And um, so it was always radio and art, art and radio my whole life. Okay. Now, this was back during the time in radio where you had to go take a test to get your FCC license, correct? Uh, yeah, well, there were two kinds, and I never got a first-class license. I got a third-class license, and that's all I really needed because I wasn't, you know, aspiring to be an engineer. In fact, I wasn't even sure that I would stay in radio. I, I, I went to college and majored in art. Uh, as an illustrator, and um, really thought that I would be uh, an artist when I got out of school until I got into my fourth year of college at the University of Arizona, and then my fifth year of college, and then uh, by then I'm majoring in drama and journalism, so I'd learn how to write and how to uh, perform. And um, I realized that I had to just go with what was working, and I was you know, doing really well on radio. And pretty soon I found myself in Boston at the biggest station in Boston. And it got even bigger. And by the end of my time there, we were, we had 34% of the audience listening to radio, listen to WRKO. It was, it was amazing. It was a great station, well run, really talented people. And there I was in the middle of it. So on the, on the success of that, they brought me out to Los Angeles to do, um, to go to KHJ, which was the pinnacle of what radio was at that time. That was what you heard in Once About, Once About a Time in Hollywood, uh, the Tarantino movie. That was the station I went to. And that was like being at the top. Just wasn't anything better. But I went there and I also started doing television. So I was put on the air as the um, sidekick to the legendary Steve Allen. So I'm on a national television show with the legend of all time, Steve Allen, who is just a genius. And I'm, I'm out there sweating. Like you remember broadcast news where Albert Brooks is sweating and how funny that was, that, that was me. I didn't, I'm telling you, people would come up, the, the makeup people would come up during the commercial and go, boy, you really sweat. And they're wiping this, you know, it's like soaked. My shirt is soaked because I am, really out of my element. I'm like trying to fit in and be cool. 
as Steve Allen's sidekick, like I have something to say at 22 years old or something. Or, yeah, somewhere in there, 22, 23. So then I, um, when it came time to be promoted at KHJ, they didn't promote me because they said, well, we don't know whether you want to be on television or radio, so we couldn't promote you. And I said, well, I tell you what, don't give me a raise, just put it in my contract that I'll get the next full, um, the major position that's coming up. And, uh, and they said they couldn't do that, so I quit. And within two weeks, I was hired by their competitor. And a few months later, they made me program director of KRLA. And now it was up to me to come up with the sound of a major market television or radio station. And, um, and that changed everything. That was astonishing. And I hired some of the most talented people in the country, B. Mitchell Reed and Brother John and a guy named Lee Baby Sims and Jimmy Rabbit. These guys were like the top guys in the country. And we kicked ass. But then, listen to this story. I have a chance to do a new television show. They signed me. I had a contract to do this new show on NBC. It was a rock show on Friday nights. And they were going to shoot the pilot that Friday. And I was the host. So I get the contract. I hadn't mentioned it. I get the contract on a Wednesday. And I give it proudly to the manager of the station and go, this is great news for us. I'm going to be the host of a national television series, and they think it's going to be really big. And he looked at me and he said, you've got to decide who puts the butter on your bread. What? Do you want to do television or radio? And so I was married with a child, and I got really insecure, and I turned it down. So I turned it down on Thursday. Thursday night, they hired Wolfman Jack. And Wolfman Jack went on to host the Midnight Special for the next 10 years. <laughs> wow. I did not know That's that something. you were originally supposed to be the host of Midnight Special. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was amazing. It's like, oh, my God, the, the saga of radio is endless. And like Howard Stern says, pretty awful. You know, there's a lot of awful people. Right, right. And I want to back up. Bad ones. Yeah, and I want to back up really quick to WRKO and 93KJ. Those two radio stations, Boston and LA respectively, were Drake Chenault and these stations were the pinnacle of top 40 in the 60s and 70s. Tight sounding, hit the post, you're not going to hear a dud. And to me, 93KJ had the best radio jingle package out of all okay. stations. The U jingle package, which was done by TM Century. I uh, totally agree. I think it was the, uh, the and, and it was sonically perfect. They had great engineers and the, the right amount of compression and the right microphones and the right preamps and the right everything. And, and it was a, a brilliant format because what Bill Drake did is he realized that radio guys get indulgent. You know, especially when they get really successful, they get cocky and they get loose and they do what they want to do because, hey, I'm number one from three to six. 
on Des Moines Y92. You know, it's like ego goes through the roof. So what he did was he said, you can talk and you've got to create a personality, but you have to do it in a very short period of time. So what's important is the music and selling the sound of the station and making it exciting and important. And then you weave your personality into the well-chosen words and humor that you can generate in those few minutes, or in some cases, seconds. And um, so the station was always exciting and up and it felt good and it felt fun. And I don't think anybody ever really did it better. No, so they were wildly successful. It was the same company. I mean, they, they had stations in San Francisco and all over the place. Right. And do you know if um, Drake's Janelle, Bill Drake, if they owned KCBQ down in San Diego where they did the last contest? Or was that another uh, chain that owned KCBQ? I think, well, hmm. Ron Jacobs, who was the, the original program director at KHJ, who really fine-tuned it, was really brilliant. He was a caustic human being, but he was really good. And he had extraordinary attention to detail. And I believe it was KCBQ or KGB. I'm not sure which one he was at in San Diego. Okay. Now to paint the picture for those of you that are too young to remember the golden era of radio, this was back in the days where you had real to real machines. You had rotary, rotary pots, had the P and A switch above the pot and you had your cart machines and each DJ had their own specific carts with liners and you had your carts for your commercials and you really had to be super tight, hit that post and be sure to give that time and temperature check at every air break. Yeah, well, they had they had it all built in. They called it a hot clock and it would, you know, you do it certain things here and certain things there. And there were there were like liners, they called them. And somebody, usually the promotion department, would write something, um, you know, 93 KHJ presents, you know, the um, the Boss 30 countdown Saturday at six or whatever. And you'd say that over the intro of the record. Or they would have a big contra a contest and they'd promote it that way. So it was always being reminded of of what the station is all about and um, how exciting they were and how colorful we can create it and talk about it. Now, did you all program your stop sets to counter the competition? Whereas we're playing music while they're in commercials, so that way you can steal some. Of a lot of people, a lot of people did that, but um, KHJ kind of created a format that nobody else had done. So they weren't as concerned about that at the time. They were more, you know, they had 20-20 news, they had 20 after the hour and 20 minutes before the hour and they'd have little breaks. And, and, and the news was also um, a personality, especially like, um, what was it, the one in Detroit um, and Windsor? CKLW, the big eight. CKLW had the greatest news department in the history of radio. And you should go on YouTube and look it up and hear the way these guys wrote. It was brilliant. It was poetry. It was a, a lot of uh, alliteration and onomatopoeia. They were like, bah, bah, da, da, bah, 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 and, and exaggeration and hyperbole. And it was sometimes hilarious, but always exciting. Right. Now, during this time, this was back when radio and music in general was very 
regional specific, whereas the playlist at RKO was totally different than CKLW or KHJ or insert here, whatever popular AM station at the time. So how did well, KHJ's playlist they, they um, were vary? They were coordinating among all their stations uh, uh, based on the research that they did and how things were doing on the billboard charts. Uh, there were exceptions, you know, where there were local acts coming out of Boston or local acts coming out of Detroit that uh, we might not be hearing in Los Angeles, or maybe ultimately we would, that would be, they would break in, the, in, in Boston or, or, or Detroit, and then they would be discovered by the rest of the country. But um, in general, I mean, they were playing the, the, the music that most people in America wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And also noticed that back in the days of AM, some stations had a high wattage in the day, and then they had to power down at night to protect some of the bigger stations that had wider signals for the ground ground swells, like WLS out of Chicago. Yeah, well, those were AM stations. AM stations did that. FM stations didn't go very far, but AM stations um, had had very specific signals. And sometimes they did have to do that. The big stations like WLS were 50,000 watt. And you could hear them. I, I could hear them in North Dakota where I grew up. And, um, and you could hear them in the East Coast and you could hear them in Texas. They were remarkable. And it was the same thing out of uh, where we heard Wolf Van Jack, um, XERB, Del Rio, Texas. I mean, I could hear that in North Dakota. Uh, FM station is is frequency modulation. It's a it's a it's a direct signal and it's high quality, but it doesn't go very far, and so there they had certain limitations. AM bounces off the ionosphere, then back onto the ground, then back up, then back down, so it can go a long ways if it has a strong signal. Mm -hmm. Now, what were what was the purpose of the music surveys? Kind of noticed that a lot of stations during the 60s and 70s, they would have a lot of the weekly surveys of your top 30, 40, and certain number here songs of the station. Well, that, you know, because there wasn't any social media and there was no other way to, you know, radio was the social media. Radio was the landscape of our lives. You know, we had radio on and the music you heard became part of your life and your lifestyle. And so the, you know, the, the stations always wanted you to know which songs are the most popular. And then it gave them an identity in the, uh, in the city that they're in. And that was just like a, a marketing device as much as anything. Mm -hmm. And how are you able to take what you learned at KSJ on to your next radio gig? Well, KHJ and WRKO were almost identical. It was exact, it was the Drake format. And so once you learn how to do that, then you can take it anywhere, basically. And the only thing that, that differed was maybe what you talk about in the, in the seconds that you have to talk. Mm -hmm. you know, how do you make it exciting, compelling, engaging, and a personality in 15 seconds? Gotta be good. Gotta think of it. Gotta think it through. Be quick. Be in, be out, and do not talk over the beginning of a record because that is a no-no in radio. For those of you that don't know, or else you get a call from the hotline. Yeah, the type of the vocal talkover. You know, it's like hitting the post. They call that. Howard Stern talks about that all the time. Hitting the post is kind of funny. Right. You got to always... talk right up to the part where the where the singer starts singing and never step on the singer, and you could find yourself back in the Midwest, buddy. 
Right. And for me, being in radio, always laugh at private parts and the scene where he did his first airship at his college station where he was playing Deep Purple, Smoke on the Water, and the needle gets broken because I believe it was some records or some carts fell on the turntable. And I probably had this moment before my first airship. I was like, man, the CDs carts are going to skip on me. I'm going to flub. Did you have any nervous jitters when you had that first crack of the mic? When I was, when I was 11. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was in radio my whole life. Um, after that little Saturday morning show, I worked uh, part-time and weekends and, and vacations in the summer in Jamestown. So I was always doing something. And we would do the news and the weather and the sports and, and everything in between and the public service stuff. It was, you had to do it all. And so, you, so you had, there's a lot of experience. And then with each new station, you would learn new tricks and it would sound a little bit better. And I have, I have air checks from when I was in college in Grand Forks, North Dakota, that are hilarious. I, I mean, terrible. Howard talks about how terrible he was. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Man. In a charming kind of way. In a charming kind of way. Man, we've all had those air checks. And also editing was a skill because this is back going real to real. And if you weren't surgical-like with your cutting of the tape with the razor blade, you were in for a long day. Yeah, well, I got really good at that. I could edit with both hands simultaneously. And, and I had my own studio for years and um, did it all on tape. So I got really fast at it. That's where I learned my, all my production skills was probably my producing is one of my better skill sets, more than being even a personality on the radio, designing a format and, and promoting it and doing the uh, marketing and, and creating billboards and creating uh, contests and promotions and then creating the, the production that sells them. We did a hilarious one at KRLA. It was the funniest contest ever. KHJ, who was our competition, <clears throat> did a, um, when Jesus Christ Superstar came out, they did the Jesus Christ Superstar contest. And I thought it was almost sacrilegious. It's like, you got to be kidding. It's like, that is so. So I came up with the great KRLA soup or star contest. Seven stars are floating in, in seven kinds of soup. You have to name the kind of soup and the, kind, and the star who's floating in it to win $10,000. It, it was the funniest contest of all time because the production was, the music was, Hosanna, superstar, Hosanna, superstar. And then it would be the voice and it would be, you know, Tommy Smothers saying something. And so people were guessing, um, okay, is it Steve Allen? Bean and bacon soup. I'm so sorry, but you'd get $100 and a can of your choice of split pea, tomato, or bean and bacon soup. Uh, which kind of soup would you like? And then we would play this every hour. It was hilarious. And then finally somebody, and we would give all the clues in rhyme. So uh, floating in circles across your TV, and then we go, oh yeah, well, that means. And, uh, and it was 
really fun to listen to. And that's the kind of thing you can do with radio because it's all like magic. And since it was tunnel vision during that time when you were at KJ and KRLA, did you all have somebody kind of flipping the dial to see what the competition is doing and saying, okay, how can we counter what they're doing so that we can overtake them for the books? Now, where people were paying attention to what other um, the other stations were playing and where they were doing breaks and so on, you try and counter that a little bit. But mostly it was in... You know, the stations that I created had personality and it was all built on bigger than life and humor. Everything was tongue in cheek. Everything was funny and parody. And the jingles, instead of being 93 KHJ, might be the Mormon Tabernacle Choir with a pipe organ, you know, singing, ah, you know, KRLA. Um, and then we, and then I'd, I'd do like 30 different jingles all with, you know, um, different styles. So we, we have something for everyone. And the whole sound of the station became uh, built on its sense of humor and its sense of fun. And that's really predominantly what we, what we were going with. And mm -hmm. all of the three major stations that I programmed in LA all were built on that. And what were the other two stations that you ended up programming out of LA? Well, after KRLA, I started K-Rock. K-Rock had been a little AM station and they hired me to do on K-Rock something original like it had been done at KRLA. Fun all the time. And it was focused on finding new music that was the greatest rock in the world. So we were the first, some, we were one of the first stations in the world to play David Bowie, Queen, um, all the punk stuff, uh, all came from K-Rock. And um, in fact, uh, Killer Queen and um, Keep Yourself Alive from Queen were the sound of K-Rock in the early days because we were, we had no money and we, we just had to build it on our personality. So the guys that were in the Turtles, uh, Mark Bowman and Howard Kalin, came in and, and I gave them a radio show and it became the Flo and Eddie by the Fireside show on Sunday nights. So we had promoted all during the week and every week they'd come in and do an original jingle promoting their show. So I got jingles for the station for nothing. I, I produced their show and the show was no song goes on for longer than 30 seconds. So they would have Mexican night and there'd be lots of songs with Mexican references and, and, um, and it'd be one song after another, after another, after another. And then guests would pop in like Keith Moon and, and Ringo Starr and, and the who's who of, of uh, entertainment at that time would come in on that show. And it became this gigantic chaotic party and that's what we built the station on, is that kind of excitement. Right. And K-Rock, legendary rock station out of L.A. I believe former host of Headbangers Ball on MTV, Ricky Ratman, was a DJ at K-Rock at some point in time. He was, but, you know, all uh, Jimmy Kimmel um, was uh, on the morning show after I left. It came in the 80s. And, um, and Adam Carolla started there. And... Um, What's his name? It's on NBC now. Um, I can't think of his name, but they were all like guys that started on K-Rock. 
K-Rock had a lot of really talented people. You know, while I was there and after I left, it, it got even better um, during the 80s. It really kind of came together under precarious, terrible circumstances. It was the worst run radio station in history. They mm. just could not get it together and everybody got screwed and nobody made any money, but they made history. Right. And back in the days of radio pre-automation, that was when live bodies were in there 24 seven and your overnight job had to be just as good as your morning, afternoon and your night, nighttime. So what were the ingredients? I that you're really into radio. Could I be wrong? Y yes, sir. I'm really into radio. Like I said, <laughs> I studied you, Casey Kasem, Wolfman Jack, uh, Scott Shannon, what he did at Z100. You know, I'm a student of the game. Yeah, yeah. I, I know all those guys. I knew Casey real well, and Scott is a great guy. He was in Hollywood Squares with me uh, when we did Radio City Music Hall. He's wow. a talented guy. That guy's really creative. Yeah, because if you looked at what he did when uh, Z100 started, how they went from worse to first, and it pretty much gave the top 40 format in New York a shot in the arm. Yeah, yeah. Well, nobody's ever been much better than Scott Shannon. Mm -hmm. Of course, Howard Stern is not even of this universe. No, he's on a tier by himself. Now, what were some of the ingredients that you would look for when finding on-air talent for one of your stations? Well, you know, most of the, you know, because we were, you know, in Los Angeles, we had a choice of, you know, really talented people who had been out there building their personalities and working their craft. So I got to choose the who's who. And uh, B. Mitchell Reed was you know, why wouldn't you want B. Mitchell Reed? He, he was like one of the, the best top 40 disc jockeys in history. And then he went and started in FM and became an extraordinary uh, FM personality. And then Brother John, who was the voice of God. Nobody in history ever had a better voice than Brother John. And he was one of the very close friend, one of the best guys I ever met, but could do anything. He could write, he could do voices, he, he did production, he did public affairs, he did the advertising, he, uh, he did it all. And, you know, and then, you know, really talented people like Jimmy Rabbit, who just died this year. And, uh, and Lee, Lee Sims, Lee Sims also uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Um, these guys were really gifted personalities. They could really... Uh, be really funny, really entertaining on the radio. So, you know, you pick the guys that you find uh, the most compelling. Right. And I want to get your take on, did you think MTV would revolutionize the music and entertainment industry since this year is 40 years of MTV? Or did you think it was going to be a flash in the pan? Or you said, like, oh, radio, we're in trouble. Oh, no. <clears throat> no, I, th I thought it would be the biggest uh, game changer of all time. Um, I was um, being considered to be uh, a person to uh, program MTV when it was in its initial stages. and didn't quite make the cut, I guess, mainly because I'd been out of radio for a while. And by that time, I was into doing television uh, commercials and and I, I left radio to start my production company and <clears throat> ended up having some, you know, big success in 
all the Southwest, California, New, um, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Texas, Oklahoma, had a, a major, it was one of the, the greatest success uh, commercial campaigns, regional commercial campaigns in US history. It was really funny. And you're speaking of the federated spots where you played federated. Yep. Fred Raider for Federated, Fred and Frieda Raider for Federated, Fred and Frieda Raider, my dog Fear for Federated. It was all built on wordplay and, and not knowing what would come next. We would do <clears throat> six or eight commercials a week. No commercial ever ran longer than 10 days in, how many years did I do it? Six, seven years? Um, I had this team of Monty Python-like players and we did it all. I owned my own cameras. We had our own lighting. We had our own sound. We had our own studios. We could do our own editing. We could do what we wanted. And we would get together on Monday. We go, who's got an idea? And I go, how about rabid frog bonanza days? And somebody would go, rabid frogs ate our warehouse. And somebody will also go, and we pass the savings along to you. I love it. Let's do it. Chuck, you get the frogs. Mike set up the shoot. So we have, you know, one idea. And by two in the afternoon, we would have six first drafts of commercials, maybe eight, depending on how many were needed, if we were launching a new store or not. And they would all be different and they would all be funny. You can watch, you can watch them. There are a, a couple of semi-documentaries that chronicle, uh, you know, my career and, and um, that whole Federated era on YouTube. One is called Bludgeon Advertising. And the other one is called Laugh Now, Think Later. And it, that's, a, that's a long one. That's like over an hour long. Uh, Bludgeon Advertising is a half hour long, but it contains every one of our favorite commercials. Now, and it shows the whole saga of it. Now for those spots, were there 30 and 60 or were there primarily 30 spots? Mostly 30. Yeah, mostly 30. Uh, we did a few 60s and then we would do campaigns to open a new store and there would be tons. There would be 10 seconds, a whole bunch of 10 second teasers. And then the 10 sec seconds would turn into 20 and then they would turn into 30s. And then there would be a, a whole grand opening. Uh, and then there would be a grand opening held over. And then there would be, you know, everything was sequenced and we had it all figured out, you know, how to launch a store. And then a lot of times I would go in because it got so popular, people would get, would stand in line for two hours at a new store to meet Fred. And I would wear these white suits and um, we would make the whole thing like a carnival. And so people would be standing in line and they would wheel me out on one of those little carts with my hand in the air, pointing a finger, smiling with dark glasses on. And I wouldn't move like a statue through the crowd. And then they would get me to the chair and sit me down and turn a switch on in my back and I would go, hey, how you doing? What do you have? What's your name? Oh, your name's Jarrell, is it? Yeah. So who should I make this out to? Yeah, great. And then they would tell people in line, they would say, when you get up to Fred, whatever you do, do not say the word Zenith. And then just say it, just do not say the word Zenith. Okay. And always there would be some smart ass along the line and we'd go, and by the way, Fred, Zenith. <laughs> And I would, and my head would fall onto the table and they would go, now you've done it. We've got to get a new Fred. And they would pull me up onto the cart 
and then wheel me back out of the out of the uh, store and we go back into the storage room and take a break have some coffee talk laugh and then they would have a new fred come out and i'd come out the same way finger in the air smiling shades on and sit me down and then we'd pick up the, the thing again it was crazy right. really crazy stuff Man, and that's the power of regional ad campaigns like your federated spots popular throughout the West Coast and Southwest U.S. You had the Carvel commercials that were popular in the tri-state area. And then, of course, all of the Jim Varney, Ernest P. World commercials that aired in various parts of the country. You know what I mean? Yeah. Every once in a while, some, you know, I had this brilliant guy who was a president of Federated who, who um, another guy who just died um, in the, yeah, a couple of years ago. One of my, one of the, the, the best guy I ever worked for. And he believed in me and, um, and gave me a shot at doing this wild idea, which, and the whole idea, and I've told this a million times. So anybody's ever heard me interviewed before will know. But uh, I sat there in a meeting about to uh, renew a radio contract with him. And he was going over their television and how much he hated their commercials. And he's embarrassed by them. And for two hours, he told the te television producer how much he hated them. And he said, don't you understand? I want something simple and funny that makes you remember the name Federated. Is that too much to ask? So I raised my hand and I said, how about this? How about if I do a Dan Aykroyd bassomatic pitch man? You know, a fast talking pitch man who uh, talks a mile a minute and at the end says, Federated smashes prices, and I'll smash a television with a circus hammer. Goes, I might, I might be funny. I said, if I do it and it works, will you give me creative control so I never do the same thing twice or people will want to kill me? And he rolled his eyes and said, yeah, fine, fine. So that weekend we did the first commercials and business went up 500%. And we were off and running. And I didn't stop from, I think it was like 1981 until 87, wow. early 88, something like that. Wow. Now, we mentioned Wolfman Jack towards the top of the podcast about how he became the host of Midnight Special after you passed on it. Did you have a relationship with Wolfman Jack? I didn't know him well, but I liked him and we got along great. And um, um I would see him at events and, and, and things, but I never got to know him personally that well. But okay. he was a great guy, okay. really, really terrific guy. Now, how did AT40 fall into your lap? Well, it happened like this. You have to go back in time. And it all is due to a guy named Rick Rosmer. Rick heard me in Boston. And he heard this, this wild young guy on the radio, and I think I was 22. And he came up and he had to hear, see who this guy was. And we started talking and he said, you should be on television. And he was producing the Dave Garraway Tempo Boston show. And Dave Garraway is another big legend, you know, like Steve Allen. He was like the first guy to do, you know, major television network television. And so I came on as the youth correspondent and I would come on and talk about things like Paul is dead and here are all the clues and all that stuff. And, and they thought that was all charming. And so he gave me a, um, my own music television show that I did for that year called Gazebo. 
and um, and I would have people on like this, like Steve Miller, and um, and interview them, and then it was you know a, a music show. So when I came to Los Angeles and went to KHJ, Rick was producing the Steve Allen show. So he had he hired me as the sidekick, you know, the young um, announcer, the Ed McMahon sidekick guy that sat on the couch next to the desk and bantered with Steve Allen. So now years go by and I get to 1980, whatever it was. Um, and Rick says, we're going to bring back Hollywood Squares. We'd like, uh, could you do the announcer for us to sell to sell the show, we're going to do the the, the uh, demo. And I said, sure. So I do it, and it became the biggest hit of the year, the number one syndicated show of the year. And he said, we're going into production. We'd like you to, to do the announcing. And I said, no. Now, by this time, because I'd done Federated, I, I had been seen on television a lot, and I thought, well, maybe there's a chance I can do some acting. It was kind of a dream of mine, and I thought, that's what I really want to do. At that very same time, I had a three-picture movie deal with Dino De Laurentiis, the legendary producer, to, uh, to do films for his company. And I was about to go off and do this film called Tracks, and it was all very exciting. So I turned Rick down. And then he came back to me again, and I turned him down again. And then on the third time, he said, I'll tell you what, why don't we put you in a square and you do the announcing from the square and you can talk about all this other stuff you're doing and uh, it works out for everything and, and we'll build a whole thing out of it. And I went, okay. So I do it and it becomes huge. So now it is everywhere. And... Um, we we're doing this out of this little stage in Hollywood. And we go to Radio City Music Hall in New York. And the five shows sell out in two hours. And, and people treated us like rock stars. It was, we had to have security. We had, you know, pull up in the limos and we'd get out and people are screaming and coming at you and stuff. It was like, I don't even know how to relate to this. It's like, what is going on here? So um, it became this, this phenomenon that was everywhere and it was like the biggest hit in the country. And so on, and then on, this, on the success of that, because I was doing so much television, I was sort of like an earlier, less successful version of Ryan Seacrest. You know, I was on television and getting a lot of attention and Casey Kasem left American Top 40 and got a new deal and they were scrambling and they had 1100 people applying to be, to be his replacement. And they came to me and I ended up auditioning five times for them. And they gave it to me, I think because of my radio background and because uh, of my television uh, presence. And so then that turned into like a whole big thing for the next seven years. Wow. So how are you able to add your own flavor and spin to the show, knowing that Casey had just left and that it was pretty much, you know, his baby? It was brutal. Because Casey was the most sincere man in the history of communication. I could not do that. Everything in my career was built on humor. It was all parody. It was all tongue in cheek. It was all wit and and bluffing and coming up with funny ideas. 
And here I am going to go in and try and do his scripts with his crew. It was his writers, his producers, his format that he developed, and it was perfect the way it was. And everybody was paranoid that I wasn't going to be good enough. And they just got like all stressed out. The first four-hour show took 18 hours to record. I had knots in my neck because I could not do what he did. It has to be written from my mouth. It has to flow in the mouth. I have to have, we had to rewrite every sentence. And so then it had to be like, I had to try and bring some of my, the best thing we, we, we did, most theatrical thing, which is the most mental radio type thing that we did was the very first show where I walked into the hall of uh, AT40 history or whatever we called it and walked through and there was a giant statue of Casey Kasem and we paint this whole picture in, in the hallowed halls. But I, for years I had said, when I'd sign off on the radio, because my name is Shadow, you know, it's all very mysterious. So I'd say, your friend in the void, the Shadow. See you next week. So I was going to do that in American Top 40 and say, well, well you, you can, what is void? It sounds so dark and, and scary. It's not dark and scary. It's, it's the, the empty ab abyss. It's the universe. It's I'm here with you, your friend in the middle of it all of the, well, no, 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 we can't do that. So I end up having to compromise and saying, your best friend, Shadow Stevens. <laughs> God, uh, okay. So Casey always signed off with, um, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Okay, that's really earnest. That's really, I mean, it's pure Casey. It's like earnest and sincere. And he was a genuinely good man. I couldn't do that. So I would come up with things like, remember, it, the world is your oyster. And if you can't find your pearl, you can always have lunch. Bye-bye out there. So it would always be some like kind of twist of phrase or something like that at the end. And that's about as much as I could do, you know, like try and deliver it and give it a warmth and humor and uh, joy and not just be like, this is what's happening and here's another long distance dedication. You know, a lot of times those were very touching and we would do the real touching ones. And, and then, you know, it became quite successful. It was in 110 countries. Yeah, you know, cause, it flew me around the world for years. Yeah, because I was going to ask you the production schedule. How long did it take to record a weekly show before they shipped it out to the affiliates? Well, in the end, it, it didn't take that long. It would usually not take uh, more than an hour. Um, for a long time, it was, you know, three or four hours. And we would go and we'd retake and we'd retake and try and make it perfect. But by the end, I knew what I was doing and they knew how to write for me so well that uh, it became pretty easy and fun. Mm. And also, did they tack on like special liners that stations requested? Like, this is Shadow Stevens, and you're listening to AT40 on WXYZ FM. Not only WXYZ FM, but you know, uh, uh, stations all over the world, and they would have to uh, do it in the the language. You know, if it was in Japanese, I would have to learn how to say things phonetically. 
so that I could say them with conviction as if I know fluent Japanese or French or Portuguese, did a lot. We were very big in uh, Brazil. And um, so I had to do these Portuguese liners and, and uh, took, a lot of <laughs> took a lot of practice. Right, and you definitely didn't want that blooper to be at the Christmas party when they were handing you your blooper reels. Well, I wouldn't have minded that. You know, I've got a pretty good sense of humor about all that kind of stuff, but I find that's that funny. Right, you know, I did I, a sitcom for four years, and there were that was my biggest concern of doing Dave's World was like blowing it, and then I realized that it was even funnier when I, whenever I got tongue tied or blew it or blew a line, and then the audience would laugh and go, "Oh, are we going to just take it again?" Oh. Okay, well, I can do that. And yeah, because everybody's had a hard day in the production studio. I mean, Casey Kasem had a hard day. Listen to the Snuggles long distance dedication flub where he was just tearing a new one into somebody. And I'm like, ooh, I, I hate to be on the wrong side of that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. It's like when the first time I heard that, it was like having Santa Claus turn on you. It was like, ah, no, 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 it can't be true. Right, because when you think of Casey Kasem, you think of, like you said, Ernest, Loyal. I mean, he was the voice of Shaggy on Scooby-Doo and so many other cartoons and did voiceovers for NBC and everything else. And I can remember reading in uh, AT40 history books on the 70s and 80s, how when he would call out the different affiliates, they would actually play their IDs over other affiliate stations. And some of the other affiliates were like, why are you playing this station's ID over our airways when it shouldn't even make a difference to you because you're not in their market. Mm -hmm. Well, those are the nuances of radio at the time. And, um, you know, we're in a new time and era. These right. Days, things are different. Right. And did you think the explosion of R&B and hip hop in the late 80s, early 90s caught, caught top 40 radio off guard to where they would have to program a lot more rap and a lot more R&B to counter if they had an urban station in their market. Because remember folks, this was back in the days when if you had a song on top 40 and it had a rap, you would have radio edit without rap. All the guys I knew in radio were excited by it. You know, um, rap and hip hop were, it was exciting music. It was, didn't sound like anything else. And some of it was just terrific. And you can see why it would cross over because it was infectious and and uh, full of life and undeniable. So um, I don't know if they were, had trouble in some places. I was kind of out of radio by the time that all came to be, you know, in the 90s and late 80s, I had um, pretty much moved into television. I didn't have, and I did American Top 40, but I wasn't really in touch with how they were doing it. So was it a hard transition going from radio to TV? Well, again, you know, I started in TV when I was pretty young. So what was hard was trying to act. You know, I, I took it really seriously. I, I studied with, uh, you know, the Stanislavski method and, and um, studied with, you know, different teachers privately, tried to learn everything I could and jam it all in and, and learn the process. And, I wouldn't say that I became a great actor, but I, I could do certain things, you know, and I had done so many characters unfederated that I was pretty flexible at, uh, you know, creating different personas 
so that came you know comedy came you know pretty easy for me because it's what I, I've spent my whole life doing mm-hmm. now when you were going to acting did you worry about being typecast as oh I'm going to be this guy and I want to be taken seriously as an actor no I couldn't believe that I was even getting a chance frankly I, I was like terrified that I wouldn't that I would be embarrassing and so I went off the I mean the first thing I did was this film and it was a 15 million dollar film for De Laurentiis and it was called Tracks and it had a hilarious script and um, from the moment I got down to the studio it was the very first day I knew that it would be we were in trouble because I just saw what was happening and it didn't get better it still is a really crazy funny script. In fact, although it was caught in the uh, bankruptcy of De Laurentiis and although it, it got shipped off and bought by HBO and, and has the world's worst music track, the, some of the ideas are truly funny, insanely funny. And um, I took all the best parts of it and edited it into a you know, a faster, um, no attention span version of tracks. It's an hour long. I took the whole movie and edited it into an hour and took out all the awful music and put in more dramatic, you know, music and said, okay, here, here's all the best parts. You can watch that on YouTube too. And I think it's called uh, tracks reimagined or something like that. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And you also had a hand in the Kentucky fried movie, correct? Yeah, I uh, I did a lot of voices in the Kentucky Fried movie. And that's another one of those stories like uh, the Midnight Special. So I do this. I have my own production studio uh, in in Hollywood. It, uh, and we, we ended up doing a lot of advertising. We did all the advertising for the Blues Brothers movie and 48 Hours and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But um, I did voices for the Kentucky Fried movie and we hit it off so well they said, well, we'd like you to do the advertising. So I did all the advertising for them and, and won some awards, a big Apple award in New York. And, and they were pretty good, pretty good ads and it did really well for them. So they came to me afterward and they said, we loved working with you. Uh, we'd like to all get together, the four of us. And uh, the Zucker brothers and Jim Abrams were the, two, the three guys who created it. And, uh, and it would be me. And we'll just get together a couple times a week and write something. And then whatever comes of it, we'll see what happens. And I turned them down. I thought three guys been together since college and me, I'll be the, the odd man out. So I, um, I turned them down. A year later, they came to me and they asked if I would voice their production presentation for Paramount Pictures for their new movie, Airplane. And the rest is history. They paid me $300 for that voiceover and went on to become legends. <laughs> we make bad decisions in life sometimes, or maybe we don't. I don't know. You know, maybe it all turned out for the best because I haven't exactly suffered, but, but right. that was all something right. that ate away at me. Mm-hmm. If you have not seen Kentucky Fire movie, cult classic, great movie, and back to radio. For those of you that don't know, there are many voices 
to radio. You want somebody high and full of energy if you're doing the top 40 format. You want somebody a little bit more mellow like this if you're doing soft AC or something like that. And you want, once again, like that high energy person if you're doing rock oriented. Is that true to where you got to have your certain vocal inflections and styles depending on what format you're serving? I don't know if that's that way anymore, honestly. Um, I guess to some degree, uh, there's a lot of uh, vanilla. I mean, there's a lot of every there's a lot of things that just sound the same. It's been corporatized pretty badly, and everybody's gotten into voice tracking. And I don't know where new radio people are discovered anymore. There there aren't any chances because they took all the um, all the competition away, and that's what makes great radio competition you got to be better than the other guy you got to work harder you got to come up with original ideas you got to know your craft better it used to be like what you're saying but um i guess with the exception of uh like like a like a kiss kiss fm or something um, a top 40 kind of hit oriented station versus a um a classic rock station where you speak more like normal people you share you know i i don't know i don't know what it's like anymore um and i don't you know radio has become less and less part of the culture because so many things have opened up because of um new media and the internet and right. so people are now discovering that they can do like you're doing your podcast and you can craft it and you can get better and you work at it and you write and you try and go, how can I um, do something a little bit different than the other guy? And um, so it's opened up a lot of creativity, a lot of places you can go and explore that you wouldn't have if you go into a, um, a corporate owned radio station where somebody is in control of it all and they tell you what to do and you can only do that. and. You know, you don't know, I don't know where you develop your, your skills. Right. And um, this was pre-Telecom 96, where stations were everywhere. And a lot of big jocks got their start doing overnights. Or like myself, I got my start doing college radio, 2 to 4 a.m. And just working to better slots and getting reps and then going to a small market where I learned everything from production to board op and voiceover. And you had to do it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you learn. Mm -hmm. There's so, just no uh, getting around. You know, you just have to put in the hours to get good at anything. Mm -hmm. You got to get your shots up. So how does radio today find its footing? Like we were mentioning earlier with podcasting and streaming, how kids now don't understand that back in the day you had to sit and wait for a song to be played. Whereas click, click, click is right there in my hands. Yeah, well, it's all changed now, you know, and I don't even know how to how to talk about it anymore. Um, I don't know, you know, what is going to become of it all. It's becoming less and less a factor and, and stations are going bankrupt. And there's a handful of small uh, um, companies that are still doing pretty well because they, they care about their their audience and their cities and they identify with uh, local um, community. But the big corporations are all um, suffering. It's getting worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can have Might a jock. Not for the better, but... 
Yeah, because you can have a jock in Phoenix, Arizona, voice tracking for a station out in Denver or out in Cape Hatteras, North Carolina for a station in Des Moines, Iowa. And then you would have a corporate PD that has top 30, 20 songs, whatever. Say, hey, all you stations, you're going to play this. And then sometimes you may have to grease some palms, pay for play. Because I had a former co-worker that told me that back in the 80s, they were offering pretty much everything except the kitchen sink in order to get songs to be played. It was almost like a whatever it takes, do what you got to do to get the song played. Snooze up to you have a snooze up to in order to get that record to break. Well, you know, maybe, you know, that I guess that happened here and there. Um, it never happened with me ever. Um, and the, uh, the major stations that, that I was a part of, um, the, the most anybody ever gave you was, you know, uh, some drugs or something you know, and not very much. <laughs> it would be <laughs> like, oh, you know, a little less. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Or maybe tickets to see a show. Mm. And that was about it, but there were never any big gifts or any of that stuff of payola. Mm. Okay. And then I guess probably maybe it happened in uh, other times, but I wasn't there. Right. Now with your daughter, Amber Stevens West, was there any inkling that she wanted to go into show business? And how did you feel when she started to land her gigs and really catch on? Yeah, there was no question. From the time she was two years old, I would carry her into a room and she'd go, hi, my name's Amber. What's your name? And she was putting on the shows at, at every party, at every Christmas, at every New Year's, at every Easter, at every time there was family get together. She would come up with the dances, the music, the lights, the costumes, the choreography, who's going to sing what, where, uh, how it was going to be lit, how it was going to be put on. And we would all sit as a family and watch her perform. And if she screwed up, she would laugh. She would never get embarrassed. She went, oh, I just screwed up. Uh, there was no question that she was destined to act. She wanted to actually be a singer. And she's a very, very good singer. But um, we, we told her, no, if you're going to be in this business, you got to learn everything. Go learn to act. And, um, and then maybe you can sing too. So she, uh, she got into a uh, group and, and studied and within a year, I was cast in Greek. And that went on for the next four years. And she became really successful. And then it was like one thing after another, 22 Jump Street and tons of movies and other shows that were all terrific. The Carmichael shows should be on the air to this day. It was one of the great shows ever. And uh, now she's doing a new one that's coming out this spring for stars called Run the World described as um, Sex in the City with Four Black Girls in Harlem. Okay. And it sounds really good. She's got a great showrunner and good scripts. And so we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, we're looking forward to that when it drops. And I'm putting it out there now. Amber Stevens-West, if you want to come on to Beyond the Album cover to pump it, you got a spot. in the Carmichael Show, great show. Also, pre-Girls Trip, Tiffany Haddish was on that show. Lil Rail, yep. before his turn in Get Out, was on there. And Gerard Carmichael is from my neck of the woods, North Carolina, from Winston-Salem. So definitely big yep. up to Gerard Carmichael and everything that he's doing. So tell us about Mental Radio, which 
I got a chance to check out. And it reminds me a lot of those anthology radio shows where you would just gather, sit down and listen and be true to radio being the theater of the mind. Well, that's it. It's been described as, as, as audio theater on jet fuel. It is written and created by me because I could as what I really want to do. I wanted to create radio audio theater for the 21st century that uses 3D stereo, uh, contemporary sounds. Um, everything about it is, is treated seriously. It isn't played for laughs. It isn't kooky. It isn't like a cartoon, but there's stories. It's more like the Twilight Zone meets Monty Python. It's, um, it's very different. And if you listen with headphones on, it's designed to be immersive. So it will take you, you will see a movie in your head. And none of the uh, stories ever go on very long, not for more than five, six minutes at the most. And they're all different. There is um, the adventures of Guy Good and his sidekick Gabby. And Guy Good is a Western, like the Lone Ranger. But everything about mental radio is about the mind. So it's all like an allegory. It's all like filled with metaphors and real kind of crazy stuff, pretty funny stuff. Um, there's Morgan Freeman gives the history of the blues or the history of soup. There is um, parodies of um, gospel, uh, um, not so much gospel, but faith healers. And it's, it's just hilarious it's just wonderful and you and you see them all and they're all like changing it all comes from a former masonic temple somewhere in hollywood and it's based on on a backstory that in 1893 nikola tesla created wireless energy transfer his dream was to power the world for free but then he also realized that wireless energy transfer also transcended the physical world into the subconscious, into consciousness itself. And so he created a secret underground society filled with optimisticals, people who were dedicated to the, to the tenets that they would uplift the world. So there are these people who have in secret been around throughout all of the world since the 1800s, who have been there to help change things when change was needed. So like when Roosevelt said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. He didn't write that. It was one of us. All true. Oh. Or is it? There are things, there's fabricated information told with great sincerity and absolute conviction. There is also a piece in the middle where we talk about the mind, which is you know, breaking the fourth wall and talking about, you know, here's what we're up against. You know, the mind left to its own looks for, looks for what's wrong and makes a list. And it tells a narrative that if we buy into it can take us into fear and doubt and um, despair. So we need to get ahead of the mind by the actions that we take or behind the mind with meditation. What is meditation? So we'll talk about meditation. Meditation is about focus. It's about putting all of your attention on one thing. Just close your eyes and watch your breath. And you watch it go in and you watch it go out. Now, 
for thousands of years, they've handed down these tools that will allow you to go deeper within easier. And so you add to the breath a spiritually charged word, a word that has been handed down for thousands of years. And words like Om. Om is the sound of the universe. And why, why is that? Because it is a frequency found in all of creation. So that when you chant it or even think it, the vibration goes through your being. And if it, it allows you to help you focus on the breath. So the combination of the breath and the word quiets the mind, it quiets the body, the heart slows down and it goes into a sleep-like state. Now you get to experience pure consciousness, pure awareness, the spirit, the I am, the witness as something separate from the body. So we'll do a 90 second introduction to meditation in the middle of metal radio. And it's all produced with original music and gongs and chimes and Tibetan bells and things designed to quiet the body. And you get the experience of going from a jumpy mind to a quiet state in just 90 seconds. Mm. Everything other than that is funny. So um, it has been, it's gotten rave reviews. I mean, phenomenal reviews. I couldn't have, have predicted the, the lush way that people would talk about it with, with great enthusiasm. And about six months into it, um, a major Hollywood producer called me and said, I love everything about metal radio. I love the music. I love the stories. I love the characters. I love the jingles. The writing is brilliant. We need to do a television version. So we ended up negotiating for two months. And right now we're working on the presentation for a television version and taking all of the stories and things that we created for, for audio. And I'm now in my 17th chapter and, um, and designing a multimedia approach, which includes graphic novel type animation and all kinds of experimental kinds of animation and design like cut and paste animation and rotoscope and new uh, media kinds of forms of, uh, of, of treating visual so that it's ever changing and unpredictable. And we're very excited about it. So I ended up hiring the guy who ended up doing all the music for it. The music is a world-class composer by the name of Chuck Serino. And Chuck has never gotten to the John Williams kind of level, but he's absolutely brilliant. And it also, he was my director for the Federated commercials for years and directed my show for HBO, Shadow Vision. He's also a terrific 3D studio designer and special effects creator. So he's on the team to create it for television. As is a guy named Wade Chitwell, who was a mental radio fan up in Seattle. And Wade is a, um, a guy who works for Boeing. And on the side, he writes, produces, directs, and does all the special effects for little short films that win all kinds of awards. And he loves everything I do. And he said, I'm leaving Boeing this year and I want to do what I want to do. And one of the things I'd really want to do is work with you. So he's working with us too. 
So there's a, a lot of things to check out. It's a free app. Nobody's making money doing this. It was all art for art's sake and to try and make a difference and to make, to do something that you've never heard before. There's nothing like it you've ever heard before. And if you listen with earphones, like I said, things move around in your head and it will take you into a, the greatest little movies you've ever seen. And so you can get the app, going to the app store and just look up mental radio, one word, mental radio. And uh, it'll all come in on your phone, pop on your earphones. And uh, the, the uh, meditations are also available separately. There are um, seven, 16 episodes right now and uh, extras, some things that didn't make the, the shows that are pretty funny. All right. So go find that's the my app. Pitch. Go find the app, download it. And do you have any other projects that's out right now besides Mental Radio? Well, I'm the voice of the of the Antenna TV network. In case you uh, like watching uh, old school television, you know all of the old sitcoms from the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s. You know whether it's the Partridge Family or Johnny Carson on every night at 11:30, just like it used to be. Uh, Antenna TV. Look that up. You can find that on Spectrum and a bunch of cable uh, outlets. That's pretty terrific. And other than that, uh, mental radio has consumed my life. It's what I work on every day. I've attracted uh, a group of contributors, even though I do all the production and everything myself and most of the writing, I've gotten contributors and a, and a writer named Joshua Weinstein, who's absolutely brilliant. And he finally figured out how I write and how to write for this medium. And now he's unstoppable. He's just comes out with and everything I write he makes better so we write everything together now and a bunch of other people that are terrific um, people that I've worked with uh, voice actors that are terrific um, one girl named JC Wendell who uh, worked with me on Dave's World for four years uh, when that, when I was on the sitcom she's absolutely brilliant uh, another voiceover actor named um, Michael Orenstein who's a genius, um, a um, contributor named Sarge Pickman, who is this, um, he's this black Jewish um, comedian who's, besides being one of the funniest people I've ever seen, he also was a child prodigy, a pianist. At five years old, he could play anything he heard. Um, and he doesn't know how, he just could. And so he's kind of built that into his whole persona. He's really remarkable. And uh, other, you know, there's, it's, it's got quite a crew. Uh, go to mentalradio.net and you can see the contributors there and a little bit about the backstory about what it's all about. And um, come join us up here away from those people. Yeah mentalradio.net and also download the app where you can catch the show outtakes and everything else in between do you have any people that you'd like to thank before we wrap this interview and also plug your social media ha well well um you know of course you know i have the greatest family in the world i've been married to the same woman for 30 some years and um my daughter is Amber. My other daughter is China, China Rose. And China Rose is a makeup artist and is, uh, went back to college during COVID and, and uh, is another extraordinary beauty. I mean, they're Beyonce beautiful. And 
I have a son in uh, who was in Seattle, who now work. He also works for Boeing, but he works for the Missile Project out of uh, Utah now, and he's an artist. And uh, you know, and, and all of the people who have helped me do all of this stuff, I am um, I'm deeply grateful because what we're doing is pretty special, and I couldn't do it on my own. I could do an approximation of it. Um, social media, I'm shadow, S-H-A-D-O-E dot com. Shadow art for my art is shadow art, S-H-A-D-O-E art dot com. And mentalradio.net. And there you have it, people. You can catch this interview wherever you stream your podcast and on my YouTube channel, Beyond the Album Cover. And this show right here has been produced and created by yours truly, Jarrell Mason, right here in the four corners of Farmington, New Mexico. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, radio legend, TV, film, if it wasn't for this man, I would not be doing what I love to do. And that is giving you all, the people, what you want. Real, authentic interviews, no filter, and Shadow Stevens, Thank you. Let's hear it for Jarrell. Everybody, everybody, can we hear it? Thank you. Thank you. I agree. Thank you. Take a bow, Jarrell. Thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover, Shadow. Thank you.